Can comic books drive us to kill? We'll discuss that today on Footnoting History. Welcome to Footnoting History. I'm Elizabeth, and today we have as both guest and presenter, our presenter Mariah, who is here to talk about her book, The Brooklyn Thrill Kill Gang and the Great Comic Book Scare of the 1950s. Mariah's book is about four boys or young men who in the summer of 1954 thought it might be fun to go on some larks and beat up bums, as you do, apparently. And what happened from there on? So, Mariah, would you like to just kind of give a, a synopsis of your work? Sure. Um, well, basically, uh, you know, so it's the summer of 1954. And at that time, it was a moment when uh, people were really concerned about juvenile delinquency in America. And four uh, young, middle-class Jewish teenage boys started thrill-killing. Um, and they went after primarily uh, uh, what they considered to be derelicts. Um, and uh, they went out and sought to beat them up, um, and uh, two men died, and many were injured. Um, and they also were uh, using bullwhips on uh, some young women in the parks. And um, from there, because of what was happening um, outside of this case, uh, the case ended up getting catapulted to a national stage, um, and it became uh, the kind of the poster, they became the poster children, essentially, for uh, people who were seeking to ban comic books at that time. Also, it's a really fun read. Okay, which we're going to get into why it's a really fun read. So the first half of the interview is going to just kind of talk to Mariah about finding her subject, writing it up, doing the research. And then the second half, we're going to go into larger implications for the time period, the 1950s, American culture and response, um, moral crusades and discussions of that sort. So, Mariah, first, how did you find this topic? I actually kind of stumbled across it, and I think that sometimes it's like the best way to find topics. So I was doing uh, some research uh, for a professor over the summer, uh, trying to make a few bucks as a grad student, as you do, and um, and the topic, um, I was looking through newspapers from the 1940s and 1950s, and I ran across this case, you know, the first mention of this case, and I was like, man, you know, that's really interesting. Like, it's just not how I think of the 1950s. So I, you know, printed it out and I was like, you know, maybe someday I'll do something with this or I'll look more into it. Um, and so that's just, you know, where it started. Um, it was just, you know, really an accident in a newspaper. But it's uh, kind of catapulted from there. Yeah, it was just one of those instances of happenstance, basically, where you stumbled literally upon this. Yeah, I mean, I really got lucky. I mean, and that's just the truth. I mean, uh, it ended up being, you know, because I at first thought it was just something I do as a side project or, you know, just a you know conference paper. And the more I started investigating it, you know, once I realized the level of national significance that this case had um, and the, how it was tied into issues of uh, Jewish identity in that time period, uh, issues of, uh, you know, the, the crusade to, to ban comic books, uh, juvenile delinquency in that time period, you know, so, you know, once I realized that this case, like, you know, just really was representative of so many of the, the things happening at that moment in the 1950s, um, it was like, wow, I just struck gold. You know what I mean? No, you, you did. 
you 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 may use the phrase or you said that it doesn't fit into how you see the 1950s. And that's what I was also struck by while I was reading because 1950s to me mean conformity, mean, you know, all boys have really short haircuts and girls are wearing nice sweater sets and they go to school and everyone's fine and we're ducking covering under our desk. But no, there seems to be so many currents of, of paranoia running through the country at this point. And I guess I knew about fears about war and the Cold War. And then, of course, there's the Red Scare and the Lavender Scare. And then, but there's even the comic book scare, which I had not realized. Well, it's an interesting thing because, you know, because the flip side, of course, of conformity is conformity only works, you know, when those outer boundaries are policed, right? So, you know, you do have to have almost, um, you know, more vigilance or more awareness of what those boundaries are. And I think that... um, you know, what's also interesting in this time period is is the fact that everything that you're saying is completely true. I mean, for the most part, young men and women, um, you know, if you look at the sociological studies at that time, uh, you know, several of the, the sociologists looking at, at kids in this period were like, you know, but that they really are good kids. Like overall, the vast majority of teenagers, you know, listened to their parents, you know, did well in school, got good grades, you know, really were conforming to what was expected of teenage behavior in that society. Um, you know, so it's what's interesting then is why do we then become obsessed with this idea of the juvenile delinquent or the idea that so many kids were becoming delinquent? And so there's a couple of things that happen. Um, you know, James Gilbert, of course, um, you know, he uh, studied this um, in the 1980s and, you know, his, uh, you know, he really saw it as kind of a, a mass media scare in a way. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, that they had been sort of trumped up. But I think in a lot of ways, it's really about uh, the new data reporting that's happening, right? So you're starting to have like national levels of understanding of crime and criminality. Um, you're also having, you know, people kind of during World War II, you know, right. So about 10 years earlier, you know, you really did have an uptake in juvenile delinquency. Right. That was real. Um, and especially in this time period, you know, like sexual delinquency, things like that. Um, so, you know, so so there's there's a, a kernel of truth to it. Right. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do, though, with the fact that we're really at this period starting to have these national you know, statistics and, and a lot more awareness of numbers. So I think today we are so aware of the fact that we can get information from across the country um, directly through the internet and TV and national cable networks. But I think when we look back to the 1950s, we think of people having, I guess, a much smaller world of where to get information from. But you're saying, no, there, there were TV news and radio and people did have access to kind of these national awareness um, not campaigns, but that idea where you could be aware of what's happening in California when you're living in New York. I mean, so you have that level, right, where the nation has become a bit smaller after World War II. Um, you know, uh, people at, in New York are actually going to start caring in a way, like what's happening in California in a way that maybe previously they didn't. Um, you know, but you also have the FBI, right? I mean, you have, um, you know, the rise of the FBI, um, and they're really going to be the ones who start creating these national databases of crime statistics, um, you know, starting to, to correlate those numbers um, in a larger fashion. Um, you know, so that's going to change our understanding of criminality and crime and uh, ideas about crime waves. This is fascinating. This is, again, I'm a medievalist, so this is blowing me out of the water. 
in a way. When you did your research, so you chose your topic, you stumble upon your topic, you realize, wow, this could be a really great topic that touches upon a lot of things and reveals an underbelly of the 1950s, if you will. How do you do the research? Well, um, let's see, there's a variety of places that I went, you know, so some of it, um, it, you know, uh, the Wortham archives is one of the richest archives I've Mm -hmm. had the privilege to go to. Allow me now to plug Mariah's podcast on Wortham (laughs) that has been recorded and released last year, which is why we won't really be discussing him today, though he is fascinating of his own accord. Yes, absolutely. I love Frederick Wortham. So I had the opportunity to go to the Library of Congress and and, uh, go into his archive. Some of it is newspaper. And some of it was, uh, there's some great online databases. Uh, there's a guy who like literally in his basement is just scanning in upstate New York newspapers. I have to say some of those guys are my favorites. He's, because he is like that my is how would I get so much information without those guys who just will literally just say, you know what, I'm just going to scan this entire, like, th- yes, please do it. Yes. Um, you know, so, you know, so those sources. Um, interestingly enough, uh, as a 20th century historian, um, I actually could use JSTOR. I could use that to get through all the old sociology, you know, criminology and, and those, uh, you know, those articles. And then, you know, I also was forced to watch a bunch of movies on juvenile delinquency. So, yeah, so just a wide variety of different places. Now, some of the, the newspapers you used were in Yiddish because the boys were four boys from a Jewish neighborhood. They were Jewish. And so there, as we, you said earlier, there there was a lot of reparations in the, the their communities about what does this mean for what it is to be Jewish and for Jewish families and for the Jewish community, especially post-World War II. And so there were a lot of editorials and accounts in Yiddish newspapers. So you don't read Yiddish. So what did you have to do there? <laughs> no, I don't, unfortunately. Um, I actually found an amazing uh, Yiddish translator. Her name is Raija Turner. And um, I you know kind of put an ad out and uh, scraped together a few bucks through a grant and then basically turned it over <laughs> to Rye. Um, and to be honest, even then, it wasn't enough money. She did not even get paid what she deserves. Um, but yeah, she had to help me on that. Um, I can do about, you know, like, well, I'm holding up my fingers like anyone could see me, but like, you know, this much, like a tiny, I'm holding up like an inch, like that much Yiddish. That's how right. much I can do. So yeah. Um, yeah, so I absolutely had to have professional help on that. Um, and, and particularly with the translation, um, because I think for the level we we're trying to achieve, you know, uh, where I was trying to achieve with this project, I really wanted the translations to, to really not only just be accurate, but also to, ha- you know, to have that meaning, right? To have that richness and meaning that I think a, pro- a professional translator can do. Well, yeah, especially because so much of it dealt with the idea of identity. It, as I mentioned, so it's post-World War II, and the Jewish community has been more than decimated um, throughout the world. And so now they're, some of them are in Brooklyn attempting to think of how the Jewry is going to move forward. And yet here are these four boys who have gotten caught up in, are they too Americanized? Um, are some of the questions that were raised. Well, people in the community, you know, so that was already happening, okay? Basically, uh, you know, the community was, what ends up happening is, so you have the center of, of Jewry, of world Jewry, was in Europe. And, you know, of course, after World War II, that's decimated. And nobody here was expecting that. because, And all of a sudden, and of course, in this critical moment, right, in 1954, you know, Israel is nascent. So it's like, you know, we don't know if is Israel going to make it. Um, it's not the center of the Jewish world at that point. So America is supposed to pick up the slack. OK, and, and there's some ideas that if Israel doesn't make it, we're going to pick up that, you know, that be that center forever. 
you know, the reality is that uh, Jews here, you know, to a great extent, the, you know, the Jews here had been really assimilating. People had just been comfortably assimilating because Europe was there to keep the, the cantoral music and Europe, Europe was there to keep the rabbinical uh, scholarship and everything. And so all of a sudden, you know, so Europe's not there and we're like, you know, we're supposed to be taking up this mantle. And, you know, we really hadn't been preparing our children in a way that was going to make up for what was lost in Europe. And so then you have these four bar mitzvah boys, right? And uh, two of them had uh, actually uh, attended Hebrew school as children. So there was a lot of concern, I think, like um, already existing in the community about whether or not whether or not our youth was ready to take on that mantle. And I think that this, you know, really uh, solidified it for people who were, were afraid that we had, you know, essentially assimilated too too much, too quickly, too Right, far. because, I mean, all, all the boys seem to have, like, or many of them have stories where either their parents or their grandparents are were immigrants, and these are the successful immigrants. They've worked hard, they've put their nose to the grindstone, and they've managed to work their ways up from tenements to good neighborhoods to better neighborhoods to owning an electronics store, one of the families. You know, their boys are all in good high schools, good schools. So that's also another um, why there was such a big fear in this uptick in juvenile delinquency, because these were good boys from good homes with good educations. They, they weren't from a broken home. They weren't poor. They were all from the right, um, the right area. And so that becomes a question of, well, then why did they do these bad things? Because previous to that, it was supposed to be the juvenile delinquents were poor, were from broken homes. You know, Jews at this point, it's, it's a very interesting relationship that, you know, that's happening in the 50s. Um, you know, you do have people, and certainly Jack Kaza, I would say, is, is an example that there were certainly Jews who wanted to assimilate into whiteness. Um, and then there were a lot of Jews who found that, identification to be problematic. Jewish culture uh, is predicated on, um, you know, this, you know, always being that outsider, right? It's always being... Um, right, right. I mean, they're set apart. They're the chosen, but just, yes, yeah, set right. apart. I mean, I think that that's, you know, I... that's a good way to put it. But the, but the persecuted aspect is important because it's, you know, because there's an identification among a lot of Jews in this period, you know, there's a reason why there's there's a higher amount of socialism and and, and these other movements, um, you know, in the Jewish population at that time, um, you know, because th- and they identified very strongly with with groups like African Americans, right? Um, and that's not just because they were outside society; that's also because they f- Jews felt that they understood what it was like to be persecuted and outside society, and you know, so. So that became problematic, right? Because it's like, you know, that adoption of whiteness, you know, what does that mean? So it was a, a very problematic and very fraught kind of identification. And some, you know, some Jews certainly really wanted to buy into that assimilated whiteness, right? And they wanted the white male privileges, right, for, for young men like Jack Hosel. Um, So the boys were put on trial for first-degree murder, um, the four boys originally, and then um, as one of the attorneys so nicely did to 10 Little Indians, it ended up with just two. So the four boys are put on first-degree murder trial for the murder of an African-American male. But for much of the U.S. at the time, neither the defendants nor the victim would have been seen as white. But it doesn't seem, But he wasn't targeted specifically because he was African-American. They seem to just kind of pick their victims at will. I know that Jack tries to argue that there were good derelicts and bad derelicts, and they only attacked the bad derelicts. But it seemed to be just kind of a case of who's out and who can we kind of take advantage of? 
I think that that's probably, yeah, the most realistic. I mean, you know, it, it basically comes down to they chose their victims primarily because they were, uh, you know, someone who was drunk and available. Um, you know, I think later on he does uh, say to Wortham that there was some racism involved. He actually has a quote, um, and I think he says that the black man is considered less than anybody, um, and you see that in the comic books. He actually brings it back to comic books with that. Yeah, and he, was, he considered himself a white supremacist. Uh, he liked Hitler. He very much, uh, even more than Hitler, he liked generals. He very much appreciated the Nazi generals, and that's who he saw himself as being part of. Um, in some ways, yes. In some ways, I think, and I think at one point he does say that he's a white supremacist. I think it's around the same time he's talking to Wortham. But I think it's in some ways, too, it's, it's, it's more, I don't know if it's just a white supremacist as much as it's just a supremacist, right? He very much sees himself almost in this this superhero role, right? You know, I think he, he saw himself as this, like, you know, Superman who was trying to, you know, clean the streets of these derelicts, essentially. And and yet, in the comic books that they read, all the good guys were white, and all the bad guys either had darker skin or were immigrants. So these boys of Jewish extraction probably would have been seen as the bad guys in the comic books. And yet in their world, in their making, and Jack's making, he saw them as the supreme Superman white men. Well, it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's really, again, and, and this is another moment where this is really kind of, uh, everything is somewhat fluid at this moment, right? So because the people, a lot of the people working on these comic books are Jews, right? You know, a lot of the comic book authors, a lot of the, the main publishers are, are, in fact, Jewish. You know, so it is kind of, it's, it's a very odd moment. Um, I mean, it is very clear in the comic books, you know, that the heroes have a tendency to be Aryan looking, you know, and, and, and are, are very identifiably white. Um, whereas, you know, if, and for the most part, the, um, you know, the bad guys are uh, ethnic. Jack identifies himself as being more aligned with the Nazis, right? More aligned with the Aryans. Jack is interesting because he was, I mean, I use the term diagnosed. I'm not sure if it's an official diagnosis, but he was found by two different um, psychiatrists. Well, his pediatrician or his family doctor and then a psychiatrist in NYU um, found him to be schizophrenic about a year or so before all of this evolves. But kind of he just keeps falling through the cracks, he manages to convince another psychiatrist that he's not. He doesn't tell his parents to call the family doctor, so the family doctor never tells them of his findings. What does that really tell us about kind of psychiatry and mental illness in the 1950s? Because both all the these original doctors thought he should be hospitalized immediately, and yet he's well, not. Well, I think it's also important to note that um, he's, he's diagnosed with dementia praecox, you know, it's not quite, and, and it is, and, and also it's a form of schizo, schizoaffectoid disorder, I believe. Of course, the categories in the 50s are not entirely like the categories that we have now, right? So I don't, you know, I, I don't believe, like, you know, they, of course, they didn't have a diagnosis um, that would be exactly how we would conceptualize schizophrenia, right? We've narrowed it down into a much different disorder than it was uh, considered at that time. However, uh, it's interesting that the psychiatry and, and the very, there's a variety of different psychiatrists involved, right? Because you have, uh, you know, Wortham, right, who is uh, a very famous at this point, uh, cr you know, criminal psychiatrist. 
Um, you have the guy at NYU. You have his family doctor. And then you had uh, also there was like these, uh, you know, three different psychiatrists, prominent psychiatrists in the city who were diagnosing him for the newspapers, having never met him. It's interesting because, you know, and then, of course, right. And then there was another psychiatrist that he uh, he managed to what he, you know pull the wool over his eyes and get him to say that he was fine. Right. Well, that completely reminded me. Um, I'm going to plug again for my podcast on the Rosenhan experiment which is based on the idea that you can basically convince people either that you do or do not have a mental illness. And so here's Jack, who is kind of honest with one psychiatrist at NYU who decides he does have a mental illness, then sends him to another psychiatrist who Jack completely performs in front of and convinces him that everything's fine and just re-releases him. You know, part of it too, though, is just we have a similar problem today, right? Which is part of the reason that usually real psychiatric diagnoses take uh, multiple sessions and they come about over a period of time um, because people have good and bad days. And I think, you know, what happens when he sees a psychiatrist at NYU, you know, he's obviously having a bad day because he, he even admits, like, to Wortham, he says that he, um, you know, was screaming. At, you know, about at this poor, I don't, the assistant, I think it was, because, you know, she was making him do all these tests and didn't give him enough time. And he's completely having a meltdown and a, a complete freak out in this man's office. And I think so, of course, in that state, it's much easier for that psychiatrist to say this person, you know, has some serious issues. Um, and then, of course, he goes to this other psychiatrist who sees him for maybe half an hour on a good day. And they look at him and say, seems like a perfectly healthy young man to me. It's one of the problems I think that we still face to a great extent, even in modern psychiatry. Okay, so I mentioned at the beginning that your book is very readable. Did you deliberately write your book to appeal to a, a wider audience or just be not quite so dense as some history works can be? I Absolutely. That was um, when I started working on this project with my committee at, um, at SUNY Albany. Um, you know, it was really important to me based on... You know, there's there's the reality of the job market, and then I have my own personal realities, right? Um, and uh, you know, where I'm I'm li limited geographically and whatever. And so I was like, listen, you know, there, there's a certain reality for me that uh, you know, getting a professorship may not be in the cards. So instead of writing, you know, doing all this for a book that maybe two people are ever going to look at, you know, I'd really like to write something that is accessible. Uh, to a really wide group of people, um, you know, hopefully people who like comic books, people who are interested in Wortham, you know, people who want an alternate narrative, uh, true crime, you know, that kind of thing. So my committee was really cool with that. Um, they were very open to it. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that, actually. No, yeah, well, I mean, it works. And I think it is extremely accessible. And as someone who kind of grew up reading uh, illicitly my brother's true crime books, but it, it's definitely a good one. But here, okay, here's the elephant in the room, Mariah. Here it is. Do you blame comic books? I think, you know, it's, it's complicated, right? <laughs> um, but I think to a certain extent, um, I blame the comic book industry. And I think I make that fairly clear in the book. I, I do side, believe it or not, with Wortham and with um, Fitzpatrick on the fact that the industry ended up, it was their actions that caused them to be censored. Right. I mean, they had an entire decade of parents and, uh, you know, and in legislatures and people trying to say, listen, you guys have got to start self-editing. You've got to, you know, really look at what you're putting out there in the hands of children. Um, and, you know, they really they just didn't. And when they start trying in 1954, you know, it's just too little too late. And the problem becomes, you know, you have these fly by night publishers 
um, you know, who, you know, and really, like, I mean, even in studies of the comic book industry, like, right, even if you uh, look at David Haydu's, uh The Ten Cent Plague, and he's very pro-comic book, right? And he really feels, uh, I think it comes across in his book, that he felt that the, this, the whole censorship was kind of an atrocity. Um, you know, but even he, you know, admits that, you know, these publishers were on this, like, you know, it was just this gruesome spiral downward, really. And, you know, and then the other problem, too, is that, you know, because of the nature of all this and, and, and the lack of any oversight, you had books like, you know, The Knights of Horror, which are essentially sadomasochistic pornography. Um, you know, and it's very difficult at this time it, it, because one of the things the comic book industry could have done was to market to adults. That would have been just a simple solution. Just start marketing to adults. Um, and then you have, you could say, well, this isn't meant for children. This is meant for 25-year-olds, you know, or 18-year-olds or, or whatever. And then I think people would have had less of a problem with it. But because there was absolutely no effort made to, um, to market these books to adults and they were only marketed to children, uh, it became very difficult ultimately for them to justify, you know, putting this stuff in the hands of kids. And, you know, so, so I blame, I do blame the comic book industry for that. I think that they, there was plenty of places in that 10 year period that they really could have changed how all this played out. I also personally think that neuroscientifically, I think the mass media has more of an effect on children than we want to think it does. Um, there's a lot of evidence that kids can't tell the difference between fantasy and reality the way an adult brain can with a fully developed prefrontal cortex. And, you know, so I think that, you know, do I believe in the censorship, uh, in censorship in general? I don't. But I do believe in censorship uh, to minors. Right. And I think that those are two very different things. Um, I think the comic book industry, you know, should have been free to publish whatever they wanted as long as they were marketing it to an adult audience. And then no holds barred, you know, do what you want to do. But the problem was, is that the industry consistently and, and very purposefully was marketing to young children and, and, and young teens. And, I, and that's just, you know, it's not appropriate. So I, I do actually come down against comic books, um, against the industry on that. All right. Well, again, Mariah, I want to thank you. So Mariah's book is The Brooklyn Thrill Kill Gang and the Great Comic Book Scare of the 1950s. So thank you, Mariah, for talking to me about it. And I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode of Footnoting History. Thank you. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>